This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest for January 2nd, 2020. I actually wrote January 2nd, 2019 in my notes. Mm. It's 2020. Happy New Decade. Yep. GabFest listeners, the Good Trouble edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm so happy to be back in another decade with my dear Emily Bazelon of Yale University Law School and the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Happy New Year. Hello, hello. Happy New Year. And John Dickerson, of course, is making New Year's Day a five-day celebration. He's probably still still sleeping off his, his uh, epic bender from New Year's Eve. In any case, he is not here. I'm sure John is not doing that. Just FYI, John is, I'm sure, doing something familial and lovely. <laughs> Uh, but instead, Happy New Year to Josie Duffy Rice, president of The Appeal, joining us from Atlanta. Hello, Josie. Hi, thanks for having me. On today's GabFest, will the Senate impeachment trial ever happen? Then the rising tide of anti-Semitism in the U.S. and the rising tide of weird philo-Semitism in Brett Stevens's columns. And then the extraordinary life of John Lewis, the civil rights icon who announced this week that he is getting treated for late-stage pancreatic cancer. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. Emily, the president was impeached two weeks ago, or was he? <laughs> that was a question. That's that's all you got for me? Just that, that was the question. question. <laughs> was he actually impeached? Uh, I think he was impeached. There is a kind of minority law professor viewpoint expressed by Noah Feldman in the Bloomberg opinion column, arguing that you don't get impeached until the House actually sends the articles over to the Senate. I don't really think this is like going to catch on. Uh, I do not totally understand the politics of this delay in that I thought the Democrats also wanted this to be over and done. Now they seem less attached to that idea and more attached to the idea of, um, I think, exacting some more pain because it seems like both President Trump and Mitch McConnell would like to have this over more quickly. So maybe just the fact that the president and the Senate majority leader for the Republicans want it to be done showed Nancy Pelosi that there was some political maneuvering to be done in holding it off. I don't really know. I'm so tired of this part of the process. Am I losing patience for no reason? Like, was this a good holiday break we got? I, I can't tell. Josie, all right. Emily has Emily has already thrown up her hands in exhaustion and exasperation, so it's your turn. <laughs> Why do you think House Speaker Pelosi is is delaying forwarding the articles of impeachment to the Senate? She she ostensibly seems to be seeking leverage to call witnesses. That she is using a delay to try to compel or uh, induce or somehow force Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans to agree to a trial where witnesses will be called. Is that really what she's doing or is it just the delay just simply makes President Trump and McConnell more antsy and that's the purpose of it? You know, or is it there no purpose at all? I don't I'm assuming that there's some like deeper game here that I am not privy to. That being said, I think it's worth pointing out that like we all sort of know what this looks like in the end and we're all just waiting for it to happen, right? Like we know that this is that if this goes to the Senate, it, they're going to vote not to impeach him. This is not going anywhere after it leaves the House. We even know that Doug Jones like probably is going to vote against impeachment. And we're faced with, to me, this seems like the long game here is to get the record for posterity, right? To know that we like the Democrats stood up at some point when this president was doing things that we find morally reprehensible enough to to ask him, you know, to to push him out of office. It's not actually as if he's going to leave office. It's not even as if 
this may even impact his chances at re-election. It's, so the fact that we're dragging it out seems unnecessarily exhausting to me um, among a group of people and a party and a country that is so exhausted as it, as it is. So one of the things that was really striking to me, I'm now going to do that thing that is so irritating that journalists do when they come back from vacation, which is they're like, <laughs> I came back from vacation and talked to people who are not other journalists or my family. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I've just spent almost two weeks away from Washington in the real hinterlands of Boston and Vermont. Um, but what was striking to me was that not a single person I spoke to, family, not family, friends, neighbors, acquaintances, talked about impeachment. Nobody. That it, I remember when Bill Clinton was impeached, all anyone talked about was impeachment for months. They liked it. They enjoyed it. It was a fun conversation. It was exciting. It, it grabbed people. Nobody was talking about it. Not for, not against, nothing. And I think that's a that speaks to what you were getting to, Josie, which is that it is an important thing for posterity to have put this on the record, to have recorded his crimes and sins. But it actually is not winning any political battles, and it's not even engaging the public at the moment. And, and certainly the polling doesn't suggest it's engaging the public in any significant way either. And so the delay to me seems extremely confusing. It's a great point about engaging the public, because there are two different things at play here. One is, does it change anybody's mind? And I think, like we all said, probably not. But the second is like, is anybody even caring? <laughs> is anybody really paying attention? Like you said, are they talking about it? It's not even engaging anybody, which is wild when you think about it. But don't you think also we just we're all desperate for a break? I mean, I'm so tired of paying too much attention to American domestic politics. And I really consciously took a break from that over the holidays. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that hard. There just wasn't very much domestic news. There was foreign news, like our embassies being attacked in Iraq and uh, and saber rattling from North Korea. But it was actually possible not to think very much about Donald Trump mm -hmm. and about Nancy Pelosi. And I, for one, welcomed that respite. And I wonder if, OK, now we're back and like impeachment's going to come back and people will get some kind of second wind or at least it will be forced upon them. Do, do either of you think this witnesses question is important? And do you think that it's a battle that the Democrats can win. So so as I understand it, Speaker Pelosi and Senate Democrats, uh, including Chuck Schumer, wish to have Mick Mulvaney, John Bolton, and uh, several of their aides called to testify at the trial in the Senate. And that is at least superficially what why Nancy Pelosi is withholding the articles from the Senate. Is that important and do, do, do you either of you think that that leverage is real leverage and they're actually going to get that testimony? No. I can't imagine them getting that testimony because I don't think any of those people want to testify under oath. Right. I think that the Democrats have decided there's some political payoff in pointing to the fact that those witnesses are missing and that's a choice that the Republicans are making. Yeah, this seems to me like a lost cause. And I also almost think that pushing it to the point where we can even pretend that this is a legitimate process, right, that you're getting any good faith engagement from half of Congress is a mistake, a political mistake in itself. Maybe it's maybe maybe there is some sort of institutional value in this and, you know, maintaining norms value in this. It's funny that you brought up Noah Feldman, Emily, because I'm like, I never... <laughs> The, all this law school education that I thought I would never actually need, I somehow need again. But I don't know that there's like political, there, it's useful politically to even keep pushing on this. And even if they got them to agree to testify, I don't think that means we're getting an accurate or full story about Trump's relationship with Ukraine. Emily, do you think the courts, either at the Supreme Court level or federal appeals court level, are going to compel anything from Don McGahn or any of the other people who's who have just defied subpoenas or or asked to for rulings on whether they should testify? Uh, the Department of Justice, representing President Trump in kind of the capacity as his personal lawyer, acting basically on his personal behalf, not really acting in the government's interest, has been 
fighting at every turn to prevent any of this testimony from happening, any documents from being produced. And the impeachment has become a kind of uh, piece of that where Department of Justice is now claiming, well, because impeachment is happening, uh, these docu- these people don't need to testify. There's no reason for them to testify because impeachment's already happened. These documents don't need to be produced. Impeachment's already happened, which raises the specter that we could get through the entire Trump administration. In fact, I'm pretty sure we will get through the entire Trump administration without him or his administration ever having to produce documents or witnesses that they don't want to produce. So his tax returns, any testimony from anybody who has worked it for him at a senior level, even people who didn't even work in the administration who are claiming some form of executive privilege for personal conversations they had with him. Um, Or do you think that the courts are ever going to give us a judgment before President Trump leaves office? I think there are two different tracks. I think in the uh, world of Don McGahn, that being the kind of case that's still alive about witness testimony, that's going to take a long time. I would expect the courts to reject the administration's claim of blanket immunity for everyone and every single thing related to, uh, you know, the White House. But then there'll be a set of negotiations about what is actually covered by executive privilege and what's not. And that will take time and that will get litigated and it will drag out. The tax return cases are on a faster track because the Supreme Court has agreed to hear them and that uh, presumably will happen before the election and in time for a ruling. So I think that it is possible that the public would learn about what's in the tax returns before next November. Won't necessarily happen, but it's possible, whereas the other set of litigation seems to me like it's going much more slowly. I I really wish the Democrats would just go ahead and let this trial happen and happen quickly, even though it will be a, a mockery of a trial. And we know the result, as Josie said earlier, we know what the outcome is going to be. We know what minds are not going to be changed. Uh, I don't I just think this this dragging out and this kind of slow motion loss of air to this whole process is not helping anybody. And certainly not it's not helping the country. It's not helping Democrats, particularly politically. Not it's not really helping President Trump either. It's just it's just demoralizing. And and so I think it would be wise both politically and for in order to engage the public in the things that that there's they can still fight on, which is mainly the election, to to shift the focus from this trial, get it done towards the election, towards the kind of enthusiasm that that the Democrats should be trying to build around the election for the House, the Senate, and particularly the president. Slate Plus members, you know that you get bonus segments on the GabFest and their Slate podcasts. It's a new year, listeners. If you haven't joined Slate Plus, maybe this is the year to join Slate Plus. 2020 could be the, the incredible Slate Plus year. There could be something that you would hear in a Slate Plus bonus segment that will change your life. Maybe it's even today. <laughs> but if you're not signed up, if you're not a member of Slate Plus, you won't get that life-changing wisdom, that life-changing knowledge, that life-changing lottery numbers that we give out on every episode. So go to slate.com slash plus and sign up today. We don't actually give out lottery numbers. And today we are actually going to revisit some conundrums that we talked about in our live show last week, because at least I have one that I want to revise. I have a new thought. I forgot an answer to one of the questions. And I just want to share that. And maybe Emily has something too. And maybe Josie has her own conundrum wisdom. So come to slate.com slash plus to become a member today. Anti-Semitic incidents are becoming alarmingly frequent in the United States. Last week, on the next to last night of Hanukkah, there was a savage, savage, brutal knife attack at a Hanukkah celebration in Monsi, an Orthodox community outside of New York, apparently carried out by a disturbed man with anti-Semitic views. That followed a recent murderous attack at a kosher supermarket, also in a New Jersey suburb of New York. Shootings at synagogues have become not frequent, but certainly not uncommon affairs. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about the philo-Semitism of Brett Stevens, the New York Times columnist, because the anti-Semitism and the philo-Semitism seem to go together this week. So, Emily, you and I are the fellow Jews on this podcast. Is the rise of anti-Semitism in the United States important? It's a very small number of people who are affected. Yeah. I mean, I've come around to the idea that this is a 
more important issue than I like to think. I've come to that conclusion grudgingly because of the rise in the number of incidents. I mean, I tend to worry about paying too much attention to this as as one, I think, should worry about paying attention to any kind of violence that's linked to terrorism because we just, like, get our, our imaginations are captured and then we pay outside at, outsized attention and we forget about all the much more ordinary incidents of violence that, statistically speaking, take more people's lives. But I do think there's something unsettling that's happening here. And it doesn't have an easy explanation. And so then I find myself drawn to the explanations that are, like, in line with my own political beliefs about uh, white supremacy and the kind of shaky role that Jews have had in so many different societies over centuries when people get disillusioned and angry. They sometimes turn on Jews because of this, like, distinctive role that Jews play where they're both looked down on but then also accused of being, like, the global puppet masters of the universe who are controlling everything. Everything. And Jews' economic success in the United States then can become a kind of count against them. And I do think there's a connection between the kind of weird valorizing of Jewish achievement that Brett Stevens was doing and that you sometimes see in this bizarre way from the Trump administration, along with, I think, the real evil being perpetuated by um, particular small number of particular Jews like Stephen Miller in the government. Let me just jump in here and say – Emily is referring to column Brett Stevens, New York Times columnist, wrote last week, hugely controversial, uh, in which he tried to make an argument for the specialness of Ashkenazi Jews and their accomplishments and explain why Ashkenazi Jews are accomplished. And he was essentially making a genetic claim about Judaism that was hard to defend and that was associated with some extremely unpleasant characters. Uh, and he then had to walk back or the times and walked back some of the column. It was a very confusing uh, exchange, which ended with the, this column having a huge editor's note at the top of it, disavowing a bunch of it. I mean, the attacker in Monsey, New York, was this African-American man who has a pretty clear history of mental illness and might have absolutely nothing to do with any of the phenomenon that are distressing to me. Um, how are you taking all of this Well, I, I think the point about mental illness is an interesting one, which is that one, when – I think there is this way in which when violence becomes licensed, when violence becomes okay, one of the ways in which it – sort of manifests itself in spirals is that people who are mentally ill, who are otherwise kind of fenced in by the normal rules of society and the kind of con conventions of society, because the rhetoric has gotten more heated, because they hear about other incidents, suddenly feel a license that they didn't before. The strictures about around that have been lifted a little bit. Um, I mean, obviously, when you look at what's happened, the, the abuses that immigrants in this country are suffering under the Trump administration and in general, the abuses that Muslims uh, are suffering, both those who seek to come to this country and those who live in this country, uh, the uh, kind of the continued abuses that African-Americans in particular have suffered at the hands of an extremely you know, racist system that the Trump administration seems intent on making more racist. Those, those dwarf what's happened to Jews who remain you know, in general, incredibly rich, prosperous, safe, accepted in society, valorized in society. Uh, but I think your point, Emily, I mean, I, I too have come around to this, that it's, that it is this canary in the coal mine. The Jews are kind of a synecdoche, synecdoche, is that how you say it? Synecdoche? Uh, yeah. For globalism, for, for education, for uh, money for success and the attack on that and the attack that's coming from all kinds of directions. It's coming not just from white nationalists, it's also coming from Islamists. It's it's coming from left, from right. Uh, it's I mean, some of it's coming from the, the far, far left of of the Democratic Party even in in certain ways and a kind in a forms of anti-Zionism which which bleed into anti-Semitism. The, the, the fact that all of that's happening at once is to me a sign of something really deeply rotten and unstable that is worrisome, not necessarily because Jews are being affected, but because it represents a kind of loss of of order and a loss of kind of a loss of order, a loss of order. I don't have a better word, a loss of order in, in society. Um, Josie, Emily and I have now held forth at enormous length. <laughs> well, I have to say I found what happened um, on the second to last night of, of Hanukkah really affecting because I can 
you know, I'm not Jewish, I'm Christian, I'm black, I understand like like on different axes, people experience different levels of of hatred for their practices or their race or their gender. But I it is so difficult for me to imagine being singled out for my religion and I'm not particularly religious so that might be part of it but you know that it I find I agree Emily that the man who committed the the stabbing attack was clearly mentally ill he had a history of mental illness and I think the point that that there's a door open right for people who are suffering from some level of paranoia that this sort of stereotype and this sort of attack has become um like so much more common and accessible in a, in, in, a, in a weird way. I find it really disturbing. I, I was listening to some of my Jewish friends talk about how it makes them scared about talking about being Jewish or expressing their own sort of religious preferences in public. And I find any time that that's happening to any group, regardless of how much it's actually contributing to the crime rate or like what the actual fatality levels are compared to like, other forms, you know, compared to car accidents or whatever it may be, it doesn't have to be driving all forms of violence for it to really have an an effect on like entire groups of people in this country. That that's what I was thinking aloud a lot more than impeachment over the break. What kind of terrifying times we live in? Yeah, I mean, I think another thing for me about these episodes because there was this juxtaposition of the attack on Hanukkah and then also uh, an attempted shooting in a church in Texas where people in the pews were armed and were able to stop the attacker. And like, of course, I'm glad they stopped the attacker. But after the Hanukkah attack and this wave of anti-Semitism, we're also hearing about upping security at synagogues. And I understand like that I, that's people's natural response. And yet it's just this more arming of America and diverting mm-hmm. of resources toward guards and um, putting up barriers as opposed to like the things that you do to bring people together and unify them and helpfully prevent episodes like this by right. kind of increasing understanding. And I, whenever we take that, go in that direction as a society, it just feels so wearing and counterproductive to me. But it's like an inevitable aftermath of this kind of incident. Totally. That is, and that is the direction we always go in, right? It's like make more things illegal, arm more people, put more guards at the door. When the reality is, I think, to your point, Emily, that like if the only way the attack is stopped is at the door because there's someone there with a gun, like the problem is so much deeper. We're not actually, that's a Band-Aid, right? We're not actually like addressing the societal rot that is driving something like, you know, an increase in anti-Semitism. And it does, it is really, I find it just so depressing that there's a lack of imagination um, among policymakers and decision makers that like doesn't allow us to actually try to even address the, the deeper issues at hand. Can I make a slightly different point I've been trying to get my head around why it is so President Trump's Semitism troubles me so much, that he is this mix of philo-Semitism and anti-Semitism, which is confusing. And I think where I've come is, in a way, it's some, it's it's maybe a weird right-wing position. I feel like I'm a, I feel like I'm about to say something which would put me make me a conservative in 1995 or something. So let's see what happens. <laughs> oh, which is hell. which is that uh, there is a one of the things that I loathe about Trump is his way of seeing people as stereotypes, that he absolutely yes. puts people in groups and those groups represent a single stereotype. So Jews, whenever he talks about Jews, he talks about them as loving money, being so sharp. Uh, and he, even when it's philo-Semitic, it's like a philo-Semitism, which is just like a grotesque stereotype about what Jews are. Uh, he's absolutely that way about immigrants about the way he talks about about uh, immigrants from Mexico and Central America it's filled with the stereotypes when it, whenever he talks about really whenever he talks about any group it's a it's a stereotype it's disgusting and it's a, it's amassing it's seeing the group as representing some particular uh, characteristic that that is a, a cliche about that group it's horrible and one of the things I always liked about kind of the conservatism, the conservatism of of uh, a generation ago was that it was very it was very much let's see people as individuals. And 
the problem with that, of course, is there are these structural things that affect people because they are part of a group. And particularly, you see this with African-Americans being the number one example where you were so disadvantaged by simply having black skin in this country that you can't not when you talk about certain issues, issues that you cover, Josie, the fact of blackness is utterly essential and you can't not think about the group. But there's this way in which the group think of Trump uh, has infected us in, in all kinds of horrible, horrible, pernicious ways. And one of the ways is that Jews, like there's this acceptance of of these stereotypes around Jews as their acceptance mm-hmm. you know, of these stereotypes around immigrants that, that Trump puts out. And, and it would be so much healthier if we just never thought of Jews as a group or Africans, Amer- African-Americans as a group or, you know, Mexican-Americans as a group, even though you have to in some f- fashion. And this is also what was so bad about Brett Stevens's column, or one of the things that was bad about Brett Stevens's column is this way in which like, let's look at, let's, let's look at a group and ascribe all sorts of things to that group, you know, for, for some, some purpose, which appears nice, but it actually has a maleficent purpose ultimately. Does that make any sense? I don't know if that made any sense. Yeah, yeah, I do think it makes sense. I mean, I think you also, if you're disposed to, you can blame the left as well as the right for yes. this kind of yes, emphasis definitely. on. Right. I mean, like that's kind of identity politics. You can ascribe blame across the spectrum. And then the problem is what you were getting at. Like sometimes it doesn't make any sense to ignore group identity, but it can have this kind of like – pernicious way that it washes over us. I mean, I really liked the, a couple of tweets that Julia Yaffe wrote about the Brett Stevens comment, which she was just citing her family's experience as Russian Jews coming to America, that like when you experience that kind of prejudice, you can either decide that you're going to spend your time trying to prove that like you belong at the top of the hierarchy. You're going to buy into the notion that some groups are better than others and then like go around citing this like bullshit race science as a way of justifying it, which was effectively what Stevens was doing. Or you can realize that like this kind of group-based hierarchy is pernicious and disastrous and that eventually they're going to turn on you again. And even if that wasn't true, that you should be part of the ending of that way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of Jews have taken that second path. Like if you look at the Jewish liberal tradition in this country and other places, you see that. But we're kind of making more room for um, thinking only of oneself and one's own group identity right now in America. Like that's part of Trumpism. Uh, I worry that Bibi Netanyahu is also playing into this way of thinking as he very selfishly tries to get immunity from um, being prosecuted now that he's under indictment, but also trying to run again for prime minister. And that that is just like, you know, to me, that's like anathema is the way I think about my own Jewish identity. And to see someone like Brett Stevens kind of play into that is intensely frustrating. You know, when I was reading Brett Stevens' column, it's it's not just that it's like pernicious and and extremely like um, extremely harmful to be kind of promoting this terrible race science that like bleeds into eugenics. I mean, it's really it's really very disgusting. I think there's this other thing, which is like it's intellectually lazy, right? To like ascribe to like a group's genetic trends, something that can obviously be attributed and is complicated by and is attributable to like the place that certain groups have played historically in society, the access they have, the like ways that we measure intelligence, like the roles that different, you know, groups from people like Trump are are given um, historically in this country and sort of through the entire like history of the West. It's like the idea of even being able to essentialize race and intelligence in the way that Brett Stevens tries to do, he does it poorly, but even in any sort of measure, the goal is so short-sighted and so bad. That I did not understand it. I know I'm, I was slightly sleep deprived. It didn't make sense. It didn't make any sense. And I've been on vacation, but it made no, I literally didn't understand it. I really, I read it twice and I just, I just didn't get it. Uh, here, I have a, but the, I would make like to make a separate point about Brett Stevens, which is the um, Brett Stevens is just the great exhibit for why the New York Times columns, in fact, all columns, all columnists need to be term limited. It is absurd 
that tenure most they're valued, basically tenured <laughs> they're life tenured and it's terrible right. and you end up with with them recycling terrible ideas running out of ideas jack schaefer had a very good column about this i think for excellent politico column. just pointing out that they just run out of ideas and then right. they, they then they start saying either stupid things or saying the same things they've said 50 times and there's they're basically the number of columnists who can carry out a good column for more than three years is infinitesimally small jack cited george will i would argue that ross doubt that uh that ross is just ross's mind is so fertile that he may be you know he he's gone a little bit longer than that but basically everybody else forget it just re- f- retire them they get that you give them you give them 5 years they get 5 years that's fine or maybe they get 3 years and the and the publisher can extend them a year uh and that that's what they get but the uh, the idea that brooks and krugman and gail collins god love her she's wonderful uh, and all of those folks just sit on that page which is the most important bit of real estate in an american newspaper and just kind of say these boring things week after week is a travesty. It, term limits. They all want term limits for Supreme Court justices, make term limits for New York Times columnists. You know, and then, I think Emily, the, uh, you could have a column. And Josie, you could have a column. <laughs> um, like one of the really amazing things about being a journalist, right, is that you get to be challenged. And if you have good editors, I think, and really a ton of editors, and you allow your editors to engage with you, like that's where I've learned the most in any sort of educational or professional environment in my life is having an editor who says like, well, what about this? Well, you know, have you actually looked this up? Have you questioned this? Have you pushed yourself? And it seems to me like an extra tragedy (laughs) that not only is it sort of this tenured position, but it's also a tenured position and that it doesn't seem to be challenged internally. And I don't know the internal politics of the times, obviously, and I know less than probably both the other people on this podcast about the internal politics of the times. But to me, like the mere fear of writing something that's going to be absorbed by so many people, like you said, that's such an important piece of real estate. Um, And also that like knowing the influence that you have on that page, I'd be emailing everybody I know every time I publish something (laughs) in hopes that someone could, you know, make it a more nuanced, richer argument and ask, have you really thought this through? And that doesn't seem like historically that Brett Stevens has has chosen to kind of challenge himself that way, which I think is its own tragedy, no matter if every column he was writing was was sort of scientifically and intellectually sound. Well, also our internet culture doesn't necessarily reward the sweetly earnest way in which you would imagine yourself going about the job, right? Right. Like if you are provocative and a little bit trolly or a lot trolling other people, then things whip around the internet and you get to get a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what kind of effect that has, but it does seem like it's this part of the equation, which is not particularly healthy. It's so hard for me to imagine how this sort of um, failure to, to make you know, to basically do your job doesn't get old. Um, But I guess to your point, like maybe this is sort of the job, right? In some ways, just given the kind of culture that we live in. I mean, to me, the hardest thing about being a columnist is that you don't write when you have something to say. You write because it's Monday and that's the day that you write your column. Mm -hmm. And like that has always just struck me as like a big, big handicap to walk in with. I, I think that's really hard and really hard to sustain. Yeah, my husband writes for New York Mag and he writes, you know, three or four times a week. And I'm always amazed that he has like opinions to still run with, um, which he does. He doesn't have as many opinions as me day to day. So I'm, I guess he's saving them all for work. But I have to say, even when he writes that many times a week, he has not yet fallen back on race science. So it both seems like a hazard of the job and like maybe some other people could be point doing it a Zach's little. Point in Zach's favor. Yeah, point in Zach's favor, right. So I married him and not Brett Stevens. The job itself is set up, you're kind of set up to fail, but like you don't have to fail like this. This episode of The Gap Fest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. 
And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. John Lewis announced this week that he has been treated for stage four pancreatic cancer. That is a very terrible disease. Stage four is the very worst stage you can have of it. Arguably, well, he is one of the last living lions of the civil rights movement. He's the last living speaker from the March on Washington. He is also arguably, I would say, the greatest living American. And so he is still very much with us. He hopefully will live many, many years longer. He is clearly suffering now. And it's a good occasion to think about who he is and why he's important and and why the passing of his generation is such a loss for America. So, Josie. I'm sure you're an admirer of John Lewis. Everyone's an admirer of John Lewis. But why, wh- who is he? Why is he so important? I have to tell you, you know, I, I'm from Atlanta. I live here again now after being gone for about 15 years. And there has been no bigger hero kind of in my experience, my like um, my periphery than John Lewis. Certainly no bigger living hero. I He's my congressman. He was elected the year before, the year before I was born. And he, ha- so he's represented me my whole, my whole life. And he has been a a fixture, not just sort of in American politics, but I think specifically in Atlanta, he has always been so engaged in this community that he has been fighting for, you know, for 80 years now, um, almost. And I just think back to, gosh, time is hard to measure now. But when was it that Trump was calling Atlanta a shithole city or whatever he said about us um, and kind of just being so disparaging of of John Lewis, someone who is the ultimate patriot in my head and has con- consistently throughout his entire life since he was a teenager, put his life, his comfort and his his health on the line, right, for this country. It is unfathomable to me that he would, that he has to experience this this disease um, and that he is going through something that is so tenuous and so hard to manage. But I I mean, you have to stay hopeful, right? It's the beginning of the year. We can't lose hope yet. And I think I found it sort of relieving that he said, you know, there are more treatment options than there ever have been. I haven't been given a terminal diagnosis yet. um, And I'm going to fight this. I mean, if anybody can fight this, I don't want to make him out to seem superhuman because he's human like the rest of us. But if, but you know, He's he's fought a lot of battles I could never have fought. It's mind-boggling what he did. He was, as a teenager, he helped integrate the lunch counters of Nashville. As a student, I guess a student at Fisk, maybe, was that he was doing that. He was one of the very first, uh, or he was an early acolyte of nonviolence and trained in, the, in Lawson's, uh, James Lawson's um, nonviolence workshops. He was on the first bus of Freedom Riders. He led the Mississippi Freedom Summer a couple of years later. He was the national chairman of, of SNCC and was the one of the founders of SNCC, organized the March on Washington. He was one of the six organizers of the March on Washington. He spoke of the March on Washington. And I think you know the what will probably be the first line in any history of him and first line of his Wikipedia entry, he was 
the kind of leader and the, or certainly the, the public victim of the Selma to Montgomery march, where he, the attack on him in particular, as he prayed uh, while crossing the Edmund Pendus Bridge by white police was recorded on film. His skull was fractured. The photo of his skull being fractured became an iconic photo of the degradation of what had happened in the American South and led directly to the passing of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. That is just what he did in about six years in the early 60s. It is fucking astonishing. It's astonishing. Yeah. You know, and he, the legacy that he, you know, his, his, House seat, his congressional seat, was formerly held by Andrew Young, right? Another civil rights leader who um, was formerly mayor of uh, mayor of Atlanta and um, ambassador to the UN under Jimmy Carter. The the people who have kind of played both the inside and outside game in Atlanta, in particular, in Georgia, in the South, and I think in the United States, like writ large, have consistently and in every on every sort of level in every sort of way fought to ensure that this country lives up to its ideals right and i think it's um john lewis is 10 years younger than my grandmother who also was at the march on washington was also at the freedom rights you know left her three daughters at home when they she was in her 20s to go um down to mississippi and it makes me particularly despondent about where we are today when we're talking about an increase in anti-Semitic attacks, when we're talking about an increase in racism, when we're talking about sort of the hyper-partisan, low-integrity <laughs> nature of our current political system to see people like my grandmother, people like John Lewis, people like Andrew Young getting older and not being able to see as clearly the fruits of their labor it makes this so much sadder to me. Yeah, I was thinking a lot, as probably a lot of other people were, about a tweet from Adam Sower about whether we're really prepared for the passing of the civil rights generation. And, you know, for people who are younger and grew up with this touchstone, I mean, John Lewis is such an icon. When you hear him speak, there's just something so stirring about it. The history feels very vivid and present. And it's like we're not recovered from the ills that led to the civil rights movement. We're not done. And so it feels like it's not time to lose that sense of um, history in our midst. Mm -hmm. I also wonder about the complicated way of thinking about, like, what has changed and what hasn't changed. I feel like sometimes that gets sort of flattened as we just think about this or maybe just me. And I don't think that's because of Lewis himself. He is someone who can talk about, who's always talked about the continuing presence of racism, but also celebrate the ways in which, like, his presence in Congress, you know, and just the country has shifted. Like, we aren't where we were. We're just also not where right. we were supposed to get right. or where we need to go. Right. And so it's like trying to think about that all at once when you're also just imagining um, this world where we— lose this older generation of people who were like the witnesses and the participants. Right. It's not to say that their efforts were for naught. My son's two. His life at two is better than my grandmother's life was at two because of things that she did and people like John Lewis did. And, um, you know, 70, 80 years of um, a civil rights fight. But the fact that it feels like we're on a downward slope almost is the thing that's particularly scary, right? Because you sort of expect things to just continually get better. What do you guys think is the way to recapture, if it's even possible, some of that spirit of that generation of leaders and that movement and not necessarily, wouldn't necessarily be around civil rights. It might be around climate. It might be around voting rights. It might be around uh, criminal justice. It, It could be around any number of things. But what, are there any micro movements that you see that that are developing along the same lines? And I, one of the things I would point out is that when you look back at the history of the civil rights movement, what's interesting is that we tend to, in the kind of gauzy, nostalgic uh, film of history, we just sort of lump everybody together. Oh, it's all Dr. King and then these, you know, lieutenants to Dr. King. And that's all, you know, like it's every in the March on Washington, like that ended history. 
Um, but of course, it was like a movement that was filled with a totally a huge diversity of ideas and tactics and methodologies and kinds of people, and and which didn't always get along. And what 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 happened was that the the collective ferment and experimentation and work across different time periods and different places with different tactics was what ultimately kind of made the movement succeed for the most part. And I wonder if you guys see that developing. And if, it, if you don't see it developing, how could that be developed? And where, if you do see it developing, what subjects or what areas or what kinds of people do you see it developing in? Well, quick thing, always a mistake to forget about Malcolm X. He was just such an important strand of that movement then. But I, I guess the one thing I worry about is climate is, I think, like obviously this enormous challenge confronting humanity. But it's so slow rolling. It's kind of designed to defeat our capacity to act with urgency because we can't tell exactly what the shape of it is. We're um, much more prone to bailing out people who have these like are bearing the cost now, especially in, you know, our wealthy America, like easier to just rebuild on a coastline than really rethink what we're doing and try to marshal all of our resources to stop this. It's It defeats us in its slowness. And I think that to me, what feels like in this country and and uh, internationally, the issue of immigrants right now feels like it has a lot of that urgency in terms of the way that we're actually treating people and the lack of humanity from you know government actors. But it's tricky because black Americans in the 60s who are facing racism, they were citizens. No one was questioning or should have been questioning their presence here. Whereas I don't think the left has figured out what to do about the fact that like most people are not just ready to open the borders. And so while it's easy to rail against the Trump administration for its terrible, inhumane policies, it's not so easy to figure out like what the boundaries are or um, what how you're going to solve the whole global scale of the problem. I, maybe I'm being overly romantic and nostalgic, but I look back on the civil rights movement and I think like, okay, there were just some basic principles that were pretty universal and in the end like won out. I mean, I think you can see that today with like the gay rights movement, with the movement to give trans people full rights this kind of sense of shared humanity that it's it's like a it feels like a more manageable problem that we're actually like addressing with some success in the United States but these climate and immigration which are to me like these enormous challenges they just both feel vexing in a different way yeah i think that's right i mean the thing to me in terms of so Obviously, I work in the criminal justice space, and I think seeing the changes that we've made even within this space in terms of institutional actors in the past five or six years has been such a fast, such a remarkable change in such a short amount of time. It literally feels like whiplash, and it get, does give me hope in the way that people's sort of basic understandings of other people's humanity can shift. I still think we're not there and that the problem we face in the criminal justice movement in some ways reminds me of the problem we face in the immigration space, right, which is essentially, well, if you break the law, you get what's coming to you, which is sort of the narrative of people who are still justifying family separation or justifying jail deaths or whatever um, whatever kind of inhumane thing people are choosing to say is okay that day. Um, the climate thing to me feels more, I mean, both completely hopeless and that like looking at Australia these past few weeks, it's just so deeply, um, deeply depressing and scary. And like that there is a generation, the generation younger than me, um, the kids in college right now, like are really fighting this, right? And are really kind of building coalitions, trying to influence policy, going out there and fighting for real climate change focused policy in a way that does give me hope that like even if we can't do this maybe the next generation can the title i gave this episode was the good trouble episode because it's a phrase that i think is lewis's phrase i don't know if it's lewis's phrase it's a great phrase but i saw it uh, all over the writing about him and i just want to pay tribute to it lewis describes himself or maybe he has been described as getting in good trouble so he's a man who was arrested 40 times 40 times in the late 50s and early 60s and good trouble, as I understand it, is this idea that you are going to you're going to mess with the system. You are going to get you do something that that is going to cause you pain, 
uh, I mean, literally physical pain. In Lewis's case, he was attacked a number of times. He was beaten badly a number of times and be uh, arrested and charged with crimes and be somebody who is in trouble. But you're doing it in this way, which is obviously noble and right and good. And I, and I love that concept of good trouble. And it's, um, it's really admirable. And I, I, I wish it on more people that they find ways to get in good trouble. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, when you're getting in good trouble, because you've had so much to drink and are so voluble that you're making change in a noble way, but causing ruckus and havoc for yourself. What are you going to be chattering about? So uh, one of the super excellent presents my children received, luckily, over this holiday was uh, my sister Dana sent my son Simon a couple of small posters from an organization called Americans Who Tell the Truth, uh, the person behind it is named Robert Shetterly. And it's these really beautiful um, illustrations. Uh, I think they're paintings of different figures in American life. It's like a very eclectic uh, collection. Everyone from like Francis Perkins to John Brown to people who are alive and well and with us today, uh, like Brian Stevenson. And they come with quotes that I think Robert Chatterley has picked out that are on the pictures. And it they're really beautiful. I imagine that they're designed kind of for classrooms, but my kid really liked the ones he received. And if you're just looking for art for a kid's room or a present for a kid who's interested in American history and curious about not famous people, Simon wanted one of Claudette Colvin. So anyway, we, we really love these posters, these small posters. And the organization, again, is called Americans Who Tell the Truth, if you're looking for a gift. I love these. Josie, what is your chatter? So I have been thinking throughout this campaign season about Joe Biden um, and his the enormous kind of grief that he's had to manage throughout his life, right? Losing two kids, one spouse, um, and so many years between these sort of two major incidents in his in his life. And 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 I think you know thinking about his son Bo, who who just died a few years ago. There's a great essay in the New York Review of Books called The Designated Mourner, and it's by Fenton O'Toole that I just has stuck with me these past couple days that I really recommend about mourning, grief, um, and Biden's uh, sort of political ideology and Irish Catholicism. Um, it's just so beautiful and nuanced and well done. What is my chatter, you ask? So the holidays... Our time when you often have uh, cultural juxtapositions because you are perhaps spending time with people you don't normally spend time with who have different cultural consumption habits than you do. And so you end up watching or listening or doing things you don't normally do because that's you're, you're absorbed in someone else's culture um, diet. And I had an interesting episode of this yesterday, which is that I was driving with my parents back from Vermont. I was driving them uh, from Vermont to Washington, D.C., which is a 600-mile drive. And that's a long time to be in a car with anybody. And my 80-something parents, who are lovely people, great company. But, you know, we want to listen to music. And so your choices when listening to music, their natural instinct when listening to music would be to listen to some boring-ass classical music. And we listened to some boring-ass classical music for a while. We listened to Carmen. We listened to some other stuff. And truthfully, it's like it does nothing for me. It's just like a drag, especially to listen to that in a car, which is really noisy, so the musical quality isn't very good. My choice, of course, would be to listen to like some pop or country or something, and that would not go over well with my parents. It might, might go over well with my mom. But, but... But, dear ones, we listen to Guys and Dolls. I don't know. Oh, I don't, good choice. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have listened to that recently or at all. Um, I've seen it a couple of times in theaters. I definitely have listened to that. Holy cannoli. Is that an amazing, amazing, amazing set of songs. It is so good. It's Frank Lesser. It's a musical. I don't even know. Probably early 50s, I guess. I'm going to guess. And it's, you know, this tale of gamblers and and then uh, people who are trying to stop them from gambling. And the songs are so good. They are just, you, you they will bring delight. They're so clever. There's this character, Adelaide. Um, all of them will be very familiar to you. A person can develop a cold. A person can develop a cold. It is, it's so, so good. 
So if you get the chance to listen to something that you haven't listened to in a while, I strongly recommend Guys and Dolls. It was I took the whole Jersey Turnpike. The Jersey Turnpike was Guys and Dolls. It was the best ride on the Jersey Turnpike I've ever had. So check it out. And, of course, we have listener chatters. You guys have sent us some over the holidays, too. Thank you for that. You can tweet them to us at, at SlateGabFest. Alex Hungerford at, at AC Hungerford pointed us to a Washington Post story. Colleges are turning students' phones into surveillance machines. Really disturbing story. And we know we're always being tracked. Everyone's tracking us. The tech companies are tracking us. Now it turns out, as someone who has a child in college, this disturbs me. I mean, I'm not like a surveillance freak, but it was weird to think that colleges are actually tracking locations and activities of the phones on that students are using. Don't like that. Seems unsettling. Not a good thing. So stop doing that, colleges. They're, of course, they have they have very uh, virtuous reasons for doing it. They, you know, it's to mm. ensure student safety, blah, 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 bullshit, whatever. Anyway, that is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is, of course, Bridget Dunlap. Melissa Kaplan helped me here in D.C. Who helped you, Emily, in New Haven? Was it Ryan McAvoy? Ryan McAvoy. It is Thank you, Ryan. Ryan McAvoy. Uh, Josie, did you produce yourself in Atlanta? I did produced myself. I produced myself. Thank you to me. Josie Duffy <laughs> Rice. <laughs> Josie Duffy Rice helped out <laughs> with Josie Duffy Rice. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. You should follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. For Emily Bazelon and Josie Duffy Rice, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, good talk. Long time. Haven't seen you in a while. Uh, yes, I know I put on weight over the holidays. What's it to you, <laughs> friend? Um, so here's the uh, here's the the brief for us today, Josie. I hope you can find a way to participate in this. But I propose that we revisit some of the conundrums. I particularly want to revisit one of the conundrums that we talked about in our Oakland show because I remembered right after the show that I actually had a much better answer than the one I gave. So I wanted to to do that. But Emily, were there any conundrums that you have in mind to revisit? revisit? No, I want to hear yours because you sound like you've really been thinking about this. <laughs> All right. Well, it's just that I, I realized that I had a story. So w- there was a question, a conundrum that was posed, which is what is the most awkward, uh, what is the most awkward work situation to have to get yourself out of? And I had talked about being on a conference call and like, you know, being being on a video conference call and forgetting you're on video and like doing all sorts of unseemly things while you're on video, but forgetting that you're on video. Uh, but actually <laughs> had one that was so much more embarrassing than this. Like, Emily, I've probably told you the story, but maybe you've forgotten <laughs> I it. I can't wait to be reminded. <laughs> um, and Josie, I, so I'm going to seek your guys' response about what, what the way I should have extricated myself. So... Uh, I'm going to blur some of these details so as not to identify um, identify the people involved. A few years ago, I had occasion. So one of the things I do for Atlas Obscura is that I pitch Atlas Obscura. As the CEO, I go out, I raise money, or I pitch projects to people, and I sort of have to talk about Atlas and, and try to get somebody who is in a position to do a partnership with us or invest in us or, or do something else with us to get them excited about this. And so I do a lot of pitching and Sometimes good at it. Sometimes I'm bad at it. Sometimes it works. Most of the time it doesn't. In any case, I had a I was uh, I had a pitch that I needed to do, and it was with it was with somebody who I didn't know. I'd never met before. A woman who was about my age, and usually I'm pitching guys because in general the like one of the dismal facts of of certainly of venture capital or investment that the men control the capital. Uh, so I'm I more often have pitched guys, but this was a, one of the one of the infrequent occasions where a woman was the decider who I was pitching, and so we were sitting at a conference table at her office, and there were a couple of other people in the room, but it was basically a conversation between me and her, and uh, I was we were sitting across a conference table that was maybe I don't know three feet wide, two feet wide, and I'm a relatively tall person, and we were having this conversation. I was pitching. It was, I was killing it. It was such a good pitch. I was doing so well. She was so on. She was like engaged. She was so excited about this project we were talking about. It was definitely going great. 
I was like, this is, I got this aced. And I'm a f- slightly fidgety person. In fact, if you could see me now, you could see me sort of gesturing. I'm a slightly fidgety, gestury person. And one of the things I do is I kind of tap my legs and tap my feet a little bit. And so I was tapping the table leg throughout this pitch and tap, tap, tapping the table leg. And, you know, maybe half an hour into the meeting, I realized, oh, shit, that's not the table leg. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today.